We are in the Gospel of John, coming to the end of chapter 12 today. Last week, we looked at uh, what we discovered was the not-so-triumphal entry, as it turned out uh, that the desires of the hearts of the ruling elite, when the elite of Jerusalem were for the most part exposed, they were either wanting to eliminate Jesus for personal advancement, or they were wanting to use Jesus for personal advancement, but the common denominator was pretty much everybody was hoping for personal earthly advancement. And so this scene that we're about to read is the closing scene of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. This is the last thing he says. And so I know this is a long reading, and so if you have health concerns, please feel free to stay seated, but if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, so let us now listen intently together to the reading of God's word from John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light." And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, 
Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And so these are the last words of Jesus to his adversaries, to the ruling elite, to, uh, to the religious rulers of Jerusalem and of Israel. These are the very last words of the public ministry recorded by John. From here on out in the gospel, the rest of the, the book will focus on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life uh, and his teaching to his disciples as he prepares them for their mission in a post-resurrection world, which is going to be a difficult one. Uh, and so rather than one real unifying theme in these last words of Jesus to the people of Israel and Jerusalem, John has comp- compiled a group of themes or a group of sayings uh, from Jesus that summarize or reiterate or sum up the main themes that have been coming through this gospel through the entire time from the very beginning of the book. And so rather than having just one main thesis for this section of the book, uh, rather than having one, just one big idea We'll have three, I'm going to give you three mini-theses or three mini-truths that John is wanting to remind us of and seal in our minds before he ends, as he ends, the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, And the first one is this, that death is always the first and necessary step into new life. Death is always the first and necessary step step into new life. Look at John verse 24 and then I'm going to skip down to verse 31 through 33. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now let's not not let the mass scale rejection of Jesus by the religious authorities and the people of Jerusalem distract us from the fact that things are going exactly according to schedule here. They are going exactly according to God's plan from the very beginning. And Israel is only playing really just a small part 
in that overall much bigger picture, which is that the death of Jesus always was the goal of the incarnation. It was always the goal of Jesus to incarnate and come to die for the sins of the world uh, so that the covenant of grace that Israel had enjoyed would break out from Israel into the entire world, which is what all the prophets had talked about since the beginning, since the beginning, since Abraham, really. And that is exactly what we see happening in the beginning of this passage. Do you remember, anybody remember last week, the last thing that happened? The very last line after the triumphal entry and everyone came out to meet Jesus with palm fronds and the whole of Jerusalem was going berserk over Jesus presenting himself as king to Jerusalem. And the last scene, the very last thing we see is the Pharisees all gathered together in utter dismay that everyone has gone after this charlatan and despite everything that they have done to try and shut him down, they look at each other in their little closed group and they say, they see, look, do you see that you are gaining nothing? The world has gone after him. That's an interesting thing for a bunch of Pharisees to say, that the world, the Greek word cosmos, meaning the whole world has gone after him. Now maybe that's hyperbole, maybe they're just saying that as a way of saying, look, everybody's gone after him. Or maybe... It's one of those weird cases where they accidentally prophesy something that's going to happen or that is happening, like the chief priest prophesied that it would better be better for one man to die for the nation than the entire nation perish. And then look, what's the very next thing we see happen in the beginning of this verse? Who shows up in broad daylight, not like Nicodemus in the middle of the night, But who shows up in broad daylight in the middle of the Passover feast wanting to see Jesus? And they don't mean just lay eyes on him. They could have done that from a distance. They've come up and they've requested an official audience. They want to know him. They want to learn more about him. They are not rejecting him. They are seeking him out. Who is it? The Greeks. Pagans. You guys. (laughs) Us. The nations. Just like we read in the call to worship and just like we read in, uh, in the beginning of the service, the nations have begun to stream into Mount Zion seeking the Lord. And that, um, that is not an accident. That is not just some happenstance that John uh, lays out for us. That is, you know, Jesus then answers. His, listen to Jesus' answer to them. He says, he says finally, after the entire book of saying, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come, the Greeks show up and Jesus says, now my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is he going to be glorified? He goes on a little bit later to say that when I am lifted up from the earth, which is John's poetic way, it's a word that means exalted, which is John's poetic way of describing the crucifixion of lifting Jesus up on the cross and also the resurrection and ascension of the Lord that brings salvation to all and glorifies the name of the Lord. He says, when I, when this, when I have been lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And it's interesting to note that that word there, draw, doesn't mean invite or entice, it means to drag like an ox cart, pulling a reluctant cart behind it in the mud, using 
extra force to pull a recalcitrant and unwilling object along. For whatever reason, Jesus takes this opportunity to announce to the disciples that the cross is about to happen. He knows it and that the cross has always, always, always been plan A. And so while Jesus didn't win at the triumphal entry like we hoped, right? He comes in, everybody's shouting. It looks like Jesus is going to win the day. And at the end, it turns out he didn't win. Although he didn't win at the triumphal entry, he did not win the political uh, glory of the nation of Israel. He won in a much more substantial way by bringing all of his people all across the globe throughout all time into salvation. And that is what he's about to accomplish here. And that's why we're here in this church worshiping today. You know, John doesn't want us to miss the fact that this is a fantastically painful and difficult process for Jesus. When he says, when he says my soul is in turmoil, a fuller definition would be, my soul is in constant turmoil and anguish. He is, he is not just in that moment afraid. He has been in abject fear and, 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 and dread of what is about to happen to him. And yet, he goes through with it, right? This is John's version of the Garden of Gethsemane here. But John also doesn't want us to miss the fact that the bigger picture of what Jesus is accomplishing through his suffering is something so much more. You know, it says, the New Testament says that for the, for, the, for the joy that was placed before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. He saw that even though in that moment of pain, there was going to be a payoff that was so much bigger and so much more glorious that he was willing to go through with it. And he gives us this picture that just like the beauty of a seed uh, that is purposefully buried into the ground, and for all intents and purposes, it just looks like that seed has been buried and forgotten. But if we'd watch the seed, if we were able to see it underground, we would see it begin to swell, and then painful cracks might form on the shell surrounding it. And then in the miracle of life, in the miracle of what God does, new life would spring forth out of that and come up and rise out producing new life that would then produce itself a thousandfold more from what it was to begin with. You know, and then in the very next breath, he says, by the way, that's not just me. Everyone who will follow me must lose his life to keep it. He has to hate his life in order to really, the word says, protect. The one who is giving up his life in this world is, is actively protecting and guarding his eternal life for the next. And, you know, what he's saying is, and I think what we miss is um, the principle that he's, he's teaching us right there is that when Jesus calls us to die, he is calling us to something more not to something less. In the same way, in the same breath, the same way that he as a seed was planted underground and sprouted forth into new life, he's saying by that same principle of life that I am giving you, 
I'm giving you, that's what's happening to you. That's what's happening to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, and we hear that as a negative, right? We think, oh, I'm going to die. I'm the seed. I'm going to be buried and forgotten. We focus on the hard part, right? Because the hard part's right now. The hard part is the cracking of the shell, the painful cracking of the shell and the swelling and and the awfulness that happens when we are being brought out of our old life and into our new life. And that's, that's a painful process. Amen? We all know that. But the, the news for us, what John wants us to know, what Jesus wants us to know here, is that's not the end. Yes, it hurts to go through the beginnings of sanctification. But the end result is that those painful cracks in the shell of our old man are going to give way and we are going to sprout out in new life that is able to reproduce itself a thousandfold what we were before. And so when you are tempted to think that the pain of, of the death to self is for nothing, remember the beauty of that picture of springing forth into new life that is able to be a part of the new life that is engulfing and encircling the globe that will survive into the world to come. Second, second major truth that's been threaded throughout the whole gospel that John wants to talk about here again at the end is this, is that when given the choice between light and darkness, people naturally choose darkness. When given the choice between light and dark, People naturally choose dark. That's what we've been seeing these guys do from beginning to end. Jesus has set, right, the ruling elite up as his foil. He's, they're the example that he's given us of people who have been given the choice between light and darkness and are constantly, constantly choosing darkness. Look at verse 37. Though he'd done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. There was a, a woman we were counseling a few years ago, who is caught up in a serious addiction, right? We're all, in various degrees, caught up in certain addictions. <laughs> Addiction is a very good clinical definition of idolatry. And um, in this case, it was a very serious one, and it was threatening her family, her life, her children. And the more we presented truth to her about what was happening in her life based on objective, our objective viewpoint, The more we presented that to her, the more she rejected it and the more she backed away from it and told us that we were crazy because it did not. What we were telling her, the truth, unfortunately, uh, it just contradicted what she wanted to believe about what was going to make her happy, what she needed to be okay. And the principle under that story is that the sad fact, the sad reality is that truth has the power to enlighten or to blind, to 
depending on the heart that's receiving it. And at first glance here, if you look at a verse like verse 40, where it says, you know, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, talking about God, it seems like he's saying that God has prevented them somehow from seeing and understanding the the truth about Jesus, and therefore it's God's fault that they did not understand this truth. And so it seems like that until we ask the question, how did God blind them? Did he blind them with the triumphal entry where Jesus did obviously Old Testament gestures to let Israel know that he was indeed the coming king foretold in all of their scriptures which they had memorized and knew like the back of their hand? Is that how God blinded them? Did God blind them with uncountable miracles and supernatural displays of divine power to show and to prove that Jesus did in fact come from God and was sent by God? Is that how God blinded them? Did he blind them by Jesus' clear teaching from Scripture that he was in fact the Messiah over and over and over again? Is that how God blinded them? And the answer to that, those questions, astonishingly, is yes. That's exactly how God blinded them. God allowed them to be blinded by truth, by presenting truth to them over and over and over again. They rejected it because it did not fit in with their rationalizations or beliefs about what they needed to be okay. And so therefore, even though they were continually presented with truth, they rejected it and were blinded by that truth, just as God has always done, just as Moses did to Pharaoh. What did Moses do? Just showed up. We worship the Yahweh, the God of Israel. He wants us to go out three days into the desert and worship, or he's going to bring a plague. No, he's not. Plague. We worship the God Yahweh. He's asked us to go out into the desert and worship him. If you don't let us go, he's going to bring another plague. No, he's not. Plague, over and over again, presenting Moses with truth, and that is what hardened Moses' heart. Same thing he did with the fathers of Israel that killed the prophets, in the same way that they're about to kill Jesus, in the same way that people reject the gospel message today. We're not out there lying to people. We're not out there deceiving people. We're out there speaking truth, and it's being rejected because it is truth. You know, John gives us a clear example of this awful phenomenon right here in verses 42 and 43, where he says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now we know that there were some among the ruling elites that did, in fact, believe. Nicodemus, for one, Joseph of Arimathea for another that came and basically gave themselves up to Pharaoh on the night Jesus died by requesting the body on the night before Passover, also thus eliminating themselves from being able to partake in the Passover, but they didn't care because they knew the old Passover was over and the new Passover had already come. But that's not what he's talking about here 
one of the one of the better commentators on John, Raymond Brown, he translates this verse not um, where it says would not confess it. He translates it to give it the nuance of would not admit it. In other words, he sees this as an example of men who knew the truth but refused to admit it as true out of fear of the consequences. And this is consistent with so much of Scripture that I think he's right. It's an example, you know, of what Paul says in Romans about the wrath of God coming upon men because although they knew the truth about God, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They did not honor him or give him thanks. This is an instance of that awful, awful truth happening. So, why is this important? Why am, I, why am I bringing this out? I think it's important for the justice of God, for our understanding of the justice of God. Because it means that in a real way, that all people are going to be judged based on their reaction to revealed truth, in one form or another. God is going to, in truth, as as the ultimate judge of the world, ratify all that on the last day. But Jesus says that the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Man, that's super important. He's saying that the word that Jesus has spoken and the reaction to it is going to be the evidence admitted into court at the last day at the judgment of all the earth. And so that tells us the judgment is going to look something like this. Did he hear? Yes. Did he understand? Yes. Did he know it was true? Yes. Did he believe it? No. He did not take it. Because he was more interested in preserving his own little kingdom than he was in accepting the free gift of eternal life. And so God will be just in giving him exactly what he wanted forever. But there's an inherent problem in that little scheme that I've given you. And the problem is uh, that the Bible says that's all of us. (laughs) There's not a one of us that naturally chooses light over darkness when given the chance. There's not a single one of us in Romans chapter 1, Paul, or Romans chapter 3, Paul puts together a collage of 10 Old Testament passages to say there was no one who's righteous, there was no one who does good, there was no one who seeks after God over and over and over again to drive home the point that we are all in this category. No one chooses the things of God And even after we hear and we understand and we agree that it's good and true, even after the Spirit comes into our hearts and we're able to say, yes, I believe in my innermost man that the law of God is delightful. Even after that, often we turn from it and go do the exact opposite, even though we know better. Can I get an amen? How can we possibly be saved? Well, the answer is the third big truth from this closing section of Jesus' public ministry, and that is that Jesus has become light for 
us. Jesus has become light for us. Look at verses 46, and then I'm going to skip down to 49 through 50. Jesus says that I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Okay. Now, I need everybody to sit up and put on your thinking caps. We are seriously handicapped here by not being first century Israelites. Uh, They would have instantly picked up on what's happening here and what Jesus is saying and the illusions that he's making based on their literacy of the Old Testament. But us, mostly a bunch of 21st century Gentiles, we're not pick, we don't naturally pick it up. So there are some seriously beautiful and amazing things being said in these last few verses, but in order to get it, I need to walk you through a little bit of Old Testament to bring it out. I promise this will be brief, this will not be painful, but I do need you to take a deep breath. Focus, and we can, we can do this, okay? So here, here we go. First of all, first of all. Now, we already know from the first point that Jesus' death was a premeditated plan that gives life to the whole world. His death pays the penalty for our sin. But, but, there's more to salvation than just that. We are also required each individually to perfectly keep the law every day of our life without fail. That's the requirement to attain eternal life. And obviously, uh, we don't do that, right? (laughs) Anybody have a good day today? Perfect day? Who had a perfect day this week? (laughs) Well, you just sinned right there, bro. We don't do that. What's the solution? How are we going to get around that requirement in the Old Testament? Well, here's what is going on at the end of this passage. First of all, Jesus is referring back to several passages in the book of Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, the second giving of the law, to show us in no uncertain terms who he is and what he is doing for us. So this is super important. First, Jesus is saying in this little passage that he is the prophet like Moses that is to come. You've heard several people throughout the gospel say, this is the prophet who is to come. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's me. He's much more than that, but he's not less than that. He's saying, this is what he's saying. From the, anybody who has heard what he just said would immediately think of Deuteronomy 18, 18, where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Those are the words that came out of heaven over Jesus at his baptism. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is saying, I'm him. That's me. So listen. Second thing. In that little passage, Jesus says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What does that mean? I thought in the New Testament, 
eternal life is the reward, right? We're commanded to keep the law. We're not commanded to do eternal life. How would we even go about doing that? And so what he's doing there is he is referring back again to Deuteronomy 32:46, where Moses says to the people of Israel, he says, and when Moses had finished speaking all of these words to Israel, he said to them, take, this is the whole law, all of the law, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all, all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live. And he says almost the same thing in a more poetic fashion in Deuteronomy 8, where it says, talking about God, and he humbled you and let you hunger and, feed and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The big idea of those two related passages is that obedience to the law is even more important than food for life. You could stop eating and die a physical death while you remain obedient, you have eternal life. But if you are not obedient to the law, even if you had bread, you would still eventually die and not attain to life. He is saying that in order to attain to life, we must keep all the commandments of God. That's what it says. That's a big, big problem. We can't do that. No one can. And so if obeying the commandment perfectly is the way to eternal life, then we're all doomed. We need to just forget about it and go home. You know, and the problem is we just can't keep the commandments in everyday life. It just doesn't happen. You know, once we do come to Christ, once the Spirit has drawn us in like an ox cart, then in our everyday life we find ourselves returning away from the commandments of God, even as we belong to Jesus. So what are we to do? What's the solution? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? In the first temptation, the devil came to him. He had fasted for 40 days. He was starving to death, and and the, the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you're truly God, turn these rocks into loaves of bread. And Jesus answers him. He answers him by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Meaning, he was telling the devil it was more important for him to be obedient to God than even it was to eat. That whole story of the temptation is this beautiful, extravagant, literarily beautiful way that the Gospels show us that Jesus was the one who was fulfilling all the commandments of God throughout his life. That Jesus, where where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where I fail, where you fail, where we all fail, Jesus 
completed all the work of the law. He obeyed all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Where we all failed, Jesus won. So putting all that together, when Jesus says that the commandment is eternal life, and it is, the commandment produces eternal life. But when he says that in this verse, he's, not, he's, saying, he's not saying that this is our commandment. He's not saying that you are still under the curse of the law to perfectly obey the law in order to receive eternal life. He's saying that this is his commandment from the Father for us. He's saying that because what he is doing, what he has done, that we are no longer under this awful curse of the law, but we are now under grace, which means that we are covered by his righteousness. We are given his righteousness as a free gift. He has died to pay the penalty for our sin, and he solved the problem of perfect obedience by being perfectly obedient for us and then giving us that righteousness as a cloak so that we may now stand before God in in perfection and love. God sees us as absolutely perfect in his son. And then out of that, we're able to leave our little self-destructive earthly kingdoms and seek to obey the law out of gratitude and love for what the salvation that we already possess in Christ. And so, in conclusion, every day, every stinking day, when you wake up, the world, the flesh, the devil conspires against you to try to get you to believe that that is not true so that you will run, so that you will say to yourself, I am wicked and I cannot stand before a holy God, and so that you will run. That is the devil's trick. When that happens, don't believe it. Don't believe it. The commandment is eternal life. It was the Father's commandment to Jesus, and Jesus has fulfilled it on your behalf. And you are now righteous and holy and able to stand before God even though he is a consuming fire in beauty and in the splendor of holiness. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your amazing word to us. Lord, the simplicity of it and yet how hard it is for us to accept it, Lord. Why is that? Why do we have our hands so clutched on our little earthly kingdoms that have no comparison to the eternal glory that you promise us? Why is it that we're so afraid of the little minor cracks in the shell of the old man and the pain that causes when we know and we've seen and we've experienced that your word and your spirit within us are producing new life that will burst forth out of the grave one day and become a part of the field of beautiful flowers of your salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember these things and help us to glorify your perfect and beautiful name for who you are and what you've done. We pray that, Lord, when the when the devil, when our own minds, when the world tries to convince us otherwise, when it tries to convince us to run from you, 
Help us to remember this, Lord, so that we might sit with you through it and so that you might continue to produce the beauty of new life in us so that we might glorify your name in the earth. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.